Hello, this is Laura Snyder, and I'm here with John Richardson and Karen Alpert. And uh, we're both, well, all three of us are part of uh, SEAT, Stop Extraterritorial American Taxation. And today it's December 2nd, uh, 2023, where John and I are, and December 3rd, where Karen is in Australia. And today we want to talk about uh, more, more of the United States in anticipation of the oral arguments that are going to take place at the U.S. Supreme Court on Tuesday, December 5th. Um, so I'll start by asking John. John, what do you think is going to happen on Tuesday? Well, I don't, I don't know, Laura. I think that's one of the things that we've got to talk about. But, I mean, we are so close. We are almost in two days. We're going to be, it's going to be the night before more, right? Yes, yes that's John right. was inspired by that to write a poem, weren't you, John? Why don't you tell I, me? I, 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 I was, okay, or a partial poem anyway. So maybe we should, actually, I got this from Laura. This is Laura's idea, of course. But uh, so here we go. Twas the night before more. Twas the night before more when all through the court not a justice was stirring, not even a clerk. The issues were hung in its briefs with care in hopes that the justices soon would be there. The tax profs were nestled all snug in their beds while visions of fake income danced in their heads. And Kathleen in kerchief and Charles and Cap had just settled their brains for a retroactive tax. Well, I think that sets the stage. What do you think? I think that's that's a great setting the stage, John. <laughs> For December fifth and December twenty fifth. All right. Well, well, absolutely. And and we've got these briefs here, and you know, perhaps. Uh, you know, I mean, seat uh, submitted a brief, and uh, I, I think that was a good idea. What, what do you think? Yes, so, John. Karen, go ahead. So, seat um, combined with Arrow, Association of Americans Resident Overseas, to submit a brief to make sure that the court was at least aware of how these the uh, repatriation tax affected not uh americans who live overseas so maybe probably the best place to start that john is with a really really brief recap of the the facts and more and what are the issues that um that are going to be decided so um sure john, what, yeah you want to give us a, a two well, sentences well, i can do facts? that or i don't know maybe i invite laura do you want to do that or i mean i'm happy to do it but uh Laura, do you want to do it? Go, go ahead, John. Okay. So the Moors are U.S. residents. And uh, what they did was they uh, invested a certain amount of their capital in a company that was based in India. And this particular company was, I understand, for the purposes of basically improving farming in India. You know, that was the overall objective. And I mean, it was a, it was an active business. I mean, it was one of these amazing things where not only did the comp the Indian company itself make profits, but it, you know, it did some good for the world, et cetera. But uh, I mean, what would this have to do with the United States, right? 
And the answer is, well, nothing, uh, but for the fact that uh, the investors in the company, the Moores, uh, Charles and Kathleen Moore, uh, were U.S. citizens, and they uh, apparently invested more than 10%, although not much more, uh, in shares of the company. And uh, in addition to that, another a U.S. there were other U.S. person investors, and, and the bottom line was that the total of U.S. investors was over 50%, and the Moors owned 10%, and that made them, uh, you know, I'm, this sounds horrible and highly subversive, but under the Internal Revenue Code, it made them U.S. shareholders of a controlled foreign corporation. And what happened was that, now that's generally okay, so the way that was working was that, you know, it was a, from their point of view, it was, I guess, a passive investment in an active business. And I don't know if they ever really expected any returns, but if they were going to get any returns, they would have been paid out in dividends and would have been they would have put them on their U.S. tax return when they were paid out. And in 2017, as part of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, uh, it, it included a provision that said, well, you know what? Um, what we're going to do if you're a U.S. shareholder of a controlled foreign corporation is we're going to make you pay a tax today on profits earned in the past by the company that were never taxable under U.S. law, even though you've never received any of this stuff. In other words, poof, we're going to deem you to have received income from something that was never taxable when it was earned, and you got to pay tax on that today. So, John, were the Moors the target of this legislation? No, uh, there's no evidence whatsoever that the Moors as individual shareholders of controlled foreign corporations were the target. The purpose of this legislation was to go after large U.S. multinationals that basically had incorporated, uh, you know, what are foreign corporations for the purposes of running businesses in those countries. And you know, had large amounts of profits that, although taxed by the country who they were earned, had never been uh, paid out as dividends to the uh, U.S. company that owned the foreign company, and therefore had never been taxed by the United States. So part of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act was to reduce the U.S. corporate tax rate from 35% to 21%, and also to give somewhat of a tax break to uh, earnings of foreign corporations in the future. So basically, I think the deal was that in return for those benefits that U.S. corporations who were shareholders of CFCs received, lower tax rate going forward generally and lower and low tax rate on foreign income, they agreed to this retroactive tax. Uh, but the problem was that that's not how this tax affected individuals who received none of the benefits, no reduction in tax rate, and no exclusion from foreign dividends in the future. And it had a particularly horrible impact on Americans abroad who just ran small businesses in their countries of residence. So the Moors paid a small amount of tax, and they've challenged it. Um, they challenged the U.S.'s ability to collect that tax or to impose that tax. And they've worked it up through the district court, the circuit court, and, and now up to the Supreme Court. 
what is the question that they've asked the Supreme Court to rule on? Laura, maybe you could give us, tell us that. The, the question posed in granting, when the Supreme Court granted certiori, is whether the 16th Amendment authorizes Congress to tax unrealized sums without apportionment among the states. Yeah, how would that work, apportionment among the states? This is not a tax that can readily be apportioned, is it? John, I'm going to let you answer that. I think the short answer is no. The, the real issue here, leaving aside the technicalities, is whether in order to be subject to taxation under U.S. law, if you actually have to receive income to have been taxed, right? In other words, if something has to have been distributed to you, you've received it. I mean, that's really the issue because the Moore's point is they never received the income, right? This was income earned by a foreign corporation, which by the way, the U.S. has no right to tax directly under the tax treaties. So what they did was they said, you know what, Mr. and Mrs. Moore, we understand you never received anything at all. But what we're going to do is we're just going to kind of pretend that you received it because we want to tax that income. So the real issue is simply whether there has to be a realization event. And the way they're defining realization is you actually have to receive something. So th there's been an awful lot of um, attention to this case. There have been over 40 amicus briefs um, submitted with the court. Why is this, this case attracting so much attention? No one's got an answer for me, huh? Well, I'm waiting for Laura. Why is You're it waiting for me. <laughs> well, well, of course. I mean, it, it was so big that, you know, seat. Our organization submitted an amicus brief. So really, Karen, you should say, you shouldn't say 40 amicus briefs. You should say seats brief and 39 other ones. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So then let's reframe the question. Laura, what was the, what was it about more that caused that um caused seat and era to have so much interest in this case that the, they were willing to, to write and submit that amicus brief? Well, as John said. The target of the repatriation tax was was large multinationals and individuals um, living in the United States and also especially living outside the United States were caught up in it. Um, the uh, this this was known. I mean, the when the, at the time the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act was adopted, the question of individuals came up. You know, are we going to apply this to them? And then when Treasury was developing the regulations under the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, again, the the issue of individuals was raised. Um, you know, what are we going to do with them? But essentially, individuals were ignored. Um, the fact that they existed just was not taken into account in the laws or in the regs. They weren't given any special, you know, any exempted from these laws that were not designed for them for them. And to a certain extent both their existence was denied and the fact that they're affected by the repatriation tax has been just denied, um, outright denied, their existence denied, the effect denied or belittled in that, oh, surely only a small number of individuals were actually affected by this. And in fact, you know, we know as, as overseas Americans, we know 
A, we exist. We know that. We exist in the millions. We know that there are many of us that operate small businesses outside the United States who were who's who were the, the the profits of those the the retained earnings of those businesses the profits were never intended to be repatriated to the United States because it's a company operating outside the United States by people who live outside the United States and the only connection to the United States is the fact that it one or more of its shareholders ha happen to have US nationality um, so the purpose of the briefs both seats and arrows brief and then the the brief submitted by uh, Winston Strawn was to basically tell the court and everybody else, we do exist. Individuals were affected by this, not just the Moors, but many other individuals were affected by this. Um, we uh, live outside the United States. We were affected in ways far more uh, devastating than the way the Moors were as US residents were affected. And we need to be taken into account in in what in the decisions being made about the repatriation tax. I think it's important to add to this. Um, you know, I mean, I'm hearing it quite correctly that you know individual Americans abroad were were impacted by this. But I think it's worth. Uh, I mean, Laura, I know that you know you spent a lot of time on the survey. Uh, you know, what does actually matter in people's lives? I mean, I'll, I'll start with a couple and then, you know, I invite Lauren, Laura and Karen to add to this. But first of all, these things that are defined as controlled foreign corporations, uh, you know, when owned by Americans abroad are typically their, you know, their, their main asset, their, their pension, right? I mean, it's, it's how they're saving for retirement. This is not like, you know, the situation with the Moors where this was just sort of a, you know, like investing in another stock, et cetera. I mean, that's what this stuff represented. And to give you an example of, you know, what this means, right? So, for example, let's say, I mean, here's a real example that I got a call after this. And uh, a doctor in British Columbia uh, had just retired. He was like 65 years old and he had in Canada, it's common to use professional corporations to, you know, create private pension plans. And that's what this is in effect was, right? But he had about either two or three million Canadian dollars in retained earnings, and that was to fund his retirement. So, you know, this thing comes along and uh, at a rate of 15 and a half percent. Anyway, the bottom line is, okay, that it would have been uh, a payment of around $600,000 of erosion of capital, right? In other words, you know, there goes a significant percentage of his retirement uh, asset, his pension. Like, this is what this actually meant to people in their lives. And, uh, and this is nothing like uh, the situation of a U.S. multinational. It, it completely destroyed people's lives and continues to destroy people's lives. John, there has been some discussion in the in the literature, uh, basically saying that individuals could have and should have taken steps to avoid this tax. They should have known it was coming. They should have taken steps to avoid it. They could have done it, for example, by incorporating as an S corporation. And so to the extent individuals are affected by this, it's their own fault. And I'm wondering what your response is to that. You're wondering what my response is to that? I am. Oh, are you wondering too, Karen? <laughs> I don't think much wonder, much imagination is required. Well, here. I mean, I, I really got to be brutally honest here, okay? 
uh, that suggestion is one of the most idiotic, ignorant things that one could imagine. It reflects a total misunderstanding of, I think, the fact, it's almost a denial of the reality that Americans abroad are taxed in their countries of residence. I mean, it's, well, so I think you can break that down, John, to a couple of things. First of all, should Americans abroad running small businesses have been spending their time managing their business, looking for new prospects, new new customers, or or looking into the crystal ball to figure out what the U.S. Congress was going to do to U.S. tax laws? Well, I, I know I know what the tax academics would say. They'd say, well, of course they should have been looking into this. No, I mean, it, the whole thing is absolutely ridiculous. And the, the notion of it being, I mean, I remember when this when this happened, there were people who didn't even believe it. You know, they thought that this whole thing was being made up because of the retroactive nature of it, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so- No, yeah, it, was it wasn't until the regulations were actually out that people understood the extent of when, the damage this was caused. When someone suggests something to you that is this outrageous, it's very difficult to believe it. Yeah. All right. You, you're saying as you're, outrageous as the the repatriation. As, as yeah. yeah. There's, I mean, just the, the when you when you think about the tax and what it means for overseas Americans, it's so outrageous that if somebody just comes up to you and says this is going to happen, they think you are crazy. I mean, it's very difficult to to understand to really psychologically, intellectually accept that it could happen. It's well, but what is it? What is it? I mean, why don't we take a stab at actually describing what happened here? Why don't how would you describe the the repatriation? So, so what happened? The way I describe it is, you had fifty years of history of U.S. controlled foreign corporations, during which time. The U.S. people who owned foreign corporations had a fairly stable set of rules that said that if you, as long as you avoid certain prohibited types of income, some part F income, the income inside your foreign corporation is not taxable by the U.S. until you receive a dividend. And then all of a sudden in 2017, at the end of 2017, and this legislation was rushed through Congress very quickly. Um, they proposed that we're going to change the, the you, corporate tax rate, change how, corp, how dividends are taxed to corporations. And as a quid pro quo on the other side of the ledger to balance it out, we're going to take all that money that the U, that U.S. multinationals have overseas and tax it at a bargain rate now. But by the way that everything is interrelated in the U.S. Um, tax code, that that tax now of what was retained, a retroactive tax that changed the rules of subpart F, that applied to all U.S. shareholders of foreign corporations, not just the ones they were trying to target, Apple, Google, et cetera, the big multinationals who had parked billions of dollars overseas. Well, that, that's exactly right. And the way you put that, uh, Karen, I mean, let's imagine that you're, you know, you run, you got a small business outside the United States. 
And your tax advisor says to you, um, well, you know, there's been a change in U.S. tax law. You know how in the past uh, the income in the corporation has not been taxed to you directly when you pay a dividends tax. Going forward, uh, they've changed that rule in two ways. Uh, the, the first of all, uh, if for active business income that was never subject to these rules, now going forward, they're going to attribute the income to the shareholder directly. You think, well, you know, that's that's interesting. Boy, on a going forward basis, we're going to have to rethink how we manage this U.S. tax situation, right? Right. But then the person says, oh, and by the way, not only, not only do we have to deal with this change going forward, but you know what? You know, you've had your corporation since I think 1986, right? You know, your whole working life. In addition to taxing it going forward, they're imposing a retroactive tax on that same active business income for 30 years. I, I think also, Karen, you mentioned you mentioned that there's a beneficial rate, but to my understanding, that beneficial rate wasn't available to the individuals. There was, I, I would have to go back and look for well, the answer I is... Think, I think not, that the individuals could do it with a 962 election in any event. Well, okay, those are those are different issues, okay? Yeah. When we talk about rates, let's be clear. Part of the TCGA changed the corporate tax rate, okay, from 35% to 21%. Amer individuals received no reduction in their tax rate. Now, when we look at the transition tax, the going backwards tax, all right, that was written so that it was a 15.5% on retained earnings that were liquid and 8% on retained earnings that were not. Now, that provision applied to both to anybody, okay, to any individual shareholder, right? They did that by a deduction, didn't they? By they excluding by a certain proportion. Right. So that meant that the effective tax rate you paid was higher as an individual than it was as a corporation, Correct. unless you made the 962 Absolutely. election. But Absolutely. you still got a, a, a deduction from the current income. Well, or, or to put it another way, okay, what, what they did really, all right, with respect to the past earnings was they said, well, we're not going to tax all of the earnings. We're going to exempt from the earnings enough so that the effective tax at whatever the rates are should come out to 15.5% and 8%. But remember that that income then just gets included in the taxpayer's income. And because individuals were paying a higher rate anyway, okay, I think that theirs would come out at, you know, at a, at a much higher rate. So. Bottom line was individuals received none of the benefits of that, all of the burdens, and even exaggerated burdens. And when we talk about individuals, I think it's important to distinguish between individuals who, like the Moors, are living inside the U.S. and in and individuals who are living outside the U.S. Because what's lost in a lot of this is the fact that the individuals who are living outside the U.S will be paying a tax locally where they live on the dividends they receive from their corporation. Um, the corporation is, of course, paying a local tax on its income. So 
that country has a complete tax system that is has for the American abroad been overlaid on top of this very convoluted U.S. tax system. Yeah, and I, the inter and the repatriation tax changed the interplay between those two systems because the U.S. with the transition tax was front running the resident country. Put another way. By front running, you mean the U.S. was deeming a realization of it and therefore imposing U.S. taxation before the country of residence would impose a tax, right? Exactly. And so then when the country of residence imposes the tax, they're not going to give a credit for U.S. tax. This is, you know, Australian source or French source income, right? Absolutely not. But the U.S. tax has already been paid, so you can't get a credit for the tax that you pay locally because that tax is well, not, not not only that okay not only that but it's not you know it's not a, a it, it's not income that's sourced to the united states right so right you're getting a credit for it anyway really what this is it's just pure good old-fashioned theft okay is you know the u.s says oh well you know as per the treaty, we can't tax the retained earnings of the corporation. So we'll look to see who the shareholders are. Oh, my God, look, it's a U.S. person. So in order to tax that, all we're going to do is we're going to say, well, U.S. person, we're going to pretend that you just received this income and tax you, even though you never received it. Fair statement? Yeah. Okay. So now we kind of understand the issues that hit the Moors. John, I'd like to hear from you what you think the ideal decision uh, on this would be well my idea of the ideal your idea of the ideal yes get rid of the whole subpart f regime okay now i understand that that you know would be offensive to an awful lot of people so let me explain this is far more than just ideological okay the subpart f regime is a way that the u.s is really trying to tax the profits of non-U.S. corporations. All right, and the U.S. should not be taxing the profits of non-U.S. corporations. So this has nothing to do with, you know, issues of partnership taxation or any of these other sort of pass-through things. So ideally, it'd be nice to get rid of the subpart F, but that's not going to happen because it's been around for too long. Ideally, what should happen is that individuals should be exempted from this period. Okay, it was never intended for them, uh, etc. So individuals should be exempted from subpart F or from just the transition tax? From the transition tax. It was a retroactive tax. They had no way to plan for it. It, you know, it's effectively gutted their pensions. You know, it left them with, you know, it, it almost guarantees double taxation. I mean, there were some, depending on country of residence, who could kind of navigate through this with what's called a 962 election. But, you know, this takes money awareness and access to decent tax professionals that are not easy to find. Uh, this was never this was never aimed at individuals. They shouldn't be saddled with this. I mean, I that, that would be, you know, from my point of view, the ideal decision in the context of what I think is rationally possible. Now, I would say this also that, you know, there's an all this clatter from, you know, the tax academics who say, oh my God, you know, a decision for the Moors will somehow blow up, you know, the US tax system, cause all these 
these other these other problems. I, I I really must say I completely disagree with that. I think they're absolutely wrong. There's there's a distinguishing feature here that doesn't exist in any of these other taxes, and that is the retroactive nature of this. I think that what the court can and should do, okay, is simply say, you know what, the question asked here, whatever it was that Laura said at the beginning of this, it's just way above our pay grade. And we're going to leave that to further decisions and working this through. But what we can say right now today is the retroactivity, the retroactive nature and effect on this on individuals who could not see this coming is so offensive that we're gonna that we're gonna strike down the transition tax as it applies to individuals based on and only on the retroactivity. That's enough. We'll leave the rest for another day. Laura, do you have anything to add? Well, I would add two things. Um, the first one is, you know, it's clear I don't have the knowledge, uh, the in-depth knowledge of the subject matter that John and Karen do. Um, so as, as let's say, a, a layperson from that perspective, it's hard for me to understand how someone could say that a tax that's only been in existence for six years, if if it stops existing, can blow up the entire tax code. I, I To me, that I just doesn't make sense how some, you know, the, the tax system's been in place for what, uh, over 100 years now, and suddenly you get rid of a six-year-old tax and it's going to blow up everything else? I, it just doesn't make it, I just on the face of it, it makes no sense. Um, the other thing I would add is that um, our brief um, talks about another element of this that I think is is very important, but I, I'm 100% sure will be ignored on Tuesday. It shouldn't be, though. Um, the uh U.S. Supreme Court has very clearly said on multiple occasions that it is a violation of 14th Amendment equal protection to discriminate on the basis of nationality. And uh, basically, discrimination on the basis of nationality is uh, akin to discrimination on the basis of race. Of clear history of U.S. Supreme Court cases saying this. So what does the repatriation tax do? Of all the people living outside the United States, it singles out people who have American U.S. nationality and treats them in a disfavorable way, thus far less favorably than it treats all other nationalities of people living outside the United States. It's a clear violation of the 14th Amendment equal protection. Um, and for that reason alone, it, it should be struck down. Um, I, of course, John's arguments, uh, John's explanation that it shouldn't apply to individuals is also absolutely true. The retroactive retroactivity aspect is absolutely true. Um, but I don't think the equal protection argument should be neglected. You know, um, on that, yeah, you know, that, that's really interesting. Um, it's a really, really interesting point that you make. And I was thinking about that the other day. And I mean, let's say that, uh, you know, the court were to rule that uh, this does violate equal protection. They can't just single out uh, U.S. citizens outside the United States. I mean, do you think that um, tre Treasury, the U.S. government might remedy that by simply saying, yeah, you know, we never thought about that. That is discriminatory. I think the solution is that the U.S. should simply extend taxing jurisdictions over all corporations everywhere in the world so it doesn't discriminate anymore. What do you think? They could try. 
I think the more I think the more rational, although I understand it won't happen, the more rational uh, next step is we should not be taxing, we should not be applying uh, discriminatory taxes to U.S. nationals in any respect, whether it has to do with CFCs or something else. That's the more rational next step. Well, it certainly is. And I think that, you know, just the, uh, the, the depravity of this, right, the extraordinary way that this has impacted Americans abroad um, is, I think, a real indictment of the U.S. extraterritorial, whatever, citizenship-based tax regime, right? Because it really is a, well, if you want a good example, it's a wonderful example of how this, you know, comes in and essentially siphons revenue out of other countries, right? And Via tax- their U.S. nationals, yes. Yeah, right. yeah. I mean, sooner Absolutely. or later, uh, I would have to think that, uh, you know, countries might want to ban uh, immigration from U.S. citizens for this reason. I mean, how can you have these people living here, you know, if they just become sort of a vehicle for the U.S. to, uh, you know, siphon revenue out of, right? If they were paying attention, that would be a logical conclusion for them to come to. But, you know, we're talking about this whole thing from, you know, what we're interested in, right, which is the citizenship taxation thing. But, you know, to me, the most interesting thing on Tuesday, and, you know, you're going to have a ringside seat, aren't you, Laura? If they let me in. I mean, this is going to be great. We're going to have actually our own personal reporter, uh, you know, et cetera, if they do. But, what I'm going to find most interesting about it is, uh, you know, what do the judges actually talk about, right? I mean, what are the issues? Um, you know, I, I uh, listened to or watched a very interesting uh, video from the Federalist Society with a couple of tax academics talking about more a day or so ago. And, I mean, it was extraordinary. I mean, it was really just a discussion of what the original intent of the 16th Amendment was, right? So, you know, it's quite interesting in that we can expect, I think, part of the discussion to be, well, you know, uh, 1913, uh, you know, what, what, what was Congress, what were they actually trying to do here, right? And I find that very, very interesting because this is another example of this sort of, you know, original intent. We don't care what the world is like today. You know, we just care about you know, what they were trying to do in a world way before subpart F, you know, any of this type of stuff, right? So we're going to have that dimension to it. Uh, we're surely going to have discussion about how this affects multinationals and the benefits they got. I mean, I think it's very interesting that not a single multinational, as, as at least as far as I'm aware, publicly objected to this, to, the, you know, the transition tax, right? It's all individuals. Uh, and, and frankly, I think it's mainly Americans abroad because they were the ones who were, you know. And, and the other fit. interesting thing, John, is that very few of the briefs that were submitted even acknowledge that there's a difference between how individuals and corporations were affected. That is true. That is true. And I think, you know, ours, I think, probably did the best job on that. Um not that there was a lot of competition, okay, but I mean, certainly, you know, we tried very hard to do that. Uh, the Is it Winston Strawn? Is that the name of the firm? 
Yeah, it, the, it was briefed and uh, submitted on behalf of individuals, and it was uh, mainly Winston and Strong's work. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that one, um, that one, I think, complemented ours actually very well in the sense that, you know, it gave real life stories that I think validated. And this is by accident, not by design. Right. But I mean, I think that they generally validated a lot of the points that we made. I mean, you know, uh, one of one of the people profiled in that brief, the, the Hermans, you know, Suzanne is, of course, a, a seat member as well. So that was great. Um. I am not sure of any other specifically that even, well, actually, there was some discussion uh, in one or two of the briefs about individuals to the extent that it simply said, well, they got out of the whole thing because they could make the chapter S election, right? Right. I think, for example, Professor Hertzfeld's uh, brief includes that. Mm-hmm. Which is, you know, I mean, an absolutely outrageous statement, absolutely outrageous. Uh, but were there any other briefs that even mentioned individuals? Well, I, don't think so. I don't think that there were. To me, what was the most shocking was um, reading the government's brief because, I, I mean, they know that the that the. Uh, that the petitioner um, are the petitioners are individuals. They know that that's not a secret, and it's very clear. But in their briefs, when they explain the need, they justify the the repatriation tax. Um, it's all about corporations. We need it because of corporations, because of corporations, because of corporations. And the government never, never makes the link to individuals, or you know. Just to them, the individual, you know, the fact that the petitioners are individuals, they might as well be corporations from the approach the government has taken. They don't they don't acknowledge that there's a difference that they don't. They, But I guess what I'm trying to say is that when they justify the need for the tax, it's all about corporations. But the petitioners it's sitting in front like of them are is not a corporation. Sorry, it's like Karen? the gaslighting, the individuals yeah. who were affected. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it is very, very interesting in that this is not, yeah, this is not a case of the the, the plaintiff, if you will, being a corporation, individuals trying to get in, you know, to have their side heard. This is a case of the plaintiff being individuals. And the individuals are not even permitted to talk about their status as individuals. Yeah, the entire discussion is all about corporations. That, that it really is gaslighting, I guess, is the right word. Yeah, uh, that that all of these commentators are gaslighting their audience in not acknowledging that the petitioners are individuals, that their situation is different, and that they had nothing to do with the with the with the um, purported uh, justification for the repatriation tax. It, well, it's really as if they all have a different agenda. Well, that's the only they explanation. Have, they they yeah. do have a different agenda. They do have a different agenda. And and I really uh, am very, very um, pleased that, uh, you know, that, that seat arrow and the individuals and Winston Strong, that, you know, that these uh, that these amicus briefs exist. Because can you imagine, can you imagine if seat arrow and when, had not put these briefs in, I mean, I mean, the point is that we're now in a situation where the situation of individuals is in the briefs. They're just ignoring it. Okay. You know, I mean, that's what's going on. If these briefs had not gone in, I mean, my God, 
nobody would even know about the impact on individuals, right? Well, they still don't. By ignoring the briefs, they still don't know. Well, I, I don't know. There's such a thing as, as, you know, if there's deemed income, there's also deemed knowledge. Okay. And there's, there's a concept that, you know, the U.S. uses to assess FBAR penalties called willful blindness. So this is, you know, if they ignore it, it's willful. Okay. I, I think there's no question about it. But here's the thing. It's there. These briefs were, they were written, they were filed. And I think that that is a, a very, very important uh, achievement. I really do. Yeah, I definitely agree. So on that note, we've been going for about 40 minutes. Why don't we um, sum up what we expect to hear on uh, on Tuesday? Well, let's start with you, Karen. Yeah, I, I expect that the court is going to continue to ignore the fact that individuals are treated different from um, from corporations. And um, yeah, I'm not sure which way they're going to come down on the whole thing. Um, they, they're probably going to focus on the question that was asked, which is uh, the one on realization. And yeah, I have no idea which way they'll fall on that. What do you well, I genuinely don't know. Um, you know, I feel as if... It looks like we've so, lost Laura's audio for some reason. You've lost my audio? You can't hear me? I can Hello? hear you. Oh. You're, you're fine, Laura. You're fine. Okay. Um, John, why don't you tell us what you, you, you expect? Karen can't hear me. To happen on Tuesday. Go uh, ahead, John. Laura, go ahead. But Karen can't hear me. Oh, I've lost okay. all the audio. It's That's me. okay. Go ahead. You're, you're... Okay, I'll go ahead then. Yeah. Um, okay. Sorry about that. Um, I think that, my speakers fell out. <laughs> um, I don't know what's going to happen. What I do think is that the Supreme Court would not have accepted to hear this case if they weren't going to change the Ninth Circuit's decision in some way. Um, I'm sad to think that they are going to ignore the whole aspect of individuals, um, but they probably will. Um, on the other hand, um, some justices, Gorsuch, for example, has shown that he's aware of overseas Americans and he does take, you know, he does think about us and take us into account. So maybe he'll ask a question, but I'm not optimistic about it. And now I've lost everybody. Oh, no, there's John. There's Karen. OK, I see. you. OK, John, your thoughts. Um, I think that. To the extent there's any discussion of individuals, it will be one or two questions from probably Gorsuch. Uh, that that would be my guess. Um, see, the Ninth Circuit, here's the thing about the Ninth Circuit decision. What it actually says is that, that realization is not required at all. Mm -hmm. So I'm expecting, um, I guess, three things. Okay, the first is, uh, I'm expecting I'm expecting some discussion of whether this original intent thing matters and how should it be determined. Uh, the second thing uh, that I expect is a lot of discussion about the benefits the corporations received uh, and that and that sort of stuff. The third thing that I'm expecting is. Uh, 
you know, let's look at this whole subpart F and hopefully the retroactivity. And is this really realization for the purposes of the 16th Amendment? And finally, I think what really may have teed this up more than anything was imagine a decision from the Ninth Circuit that said, um, you know what, well, we're not going to get into the question of whether uh, realization is definitely required or not. But in this case, uh, we think that subpart F meets the test of realization because, uh, you know, the whole point is these U.S. shareholders can control the payment of a dividend. You know, if the Ninth Circuit decision had read like that, I suspect that this case would not be heard today. But the categorical realization is not required from the Ninth Circuit is where I expect the court is going to say, yes, realization is required. But the next question is what constitutes realization? We're looking at this in the context of the attributions of earnings from a corporation that the United States does not have the right to tax to U.S. shareholders that it does. How does that figure into the realization thing? And finally, well, hold on, everybody. There's a difference between doing this on a going forward basis, the guilty rules, and going back retroactively for 30 years. So that is what I expect, but that may be just my own. Everybody has their own self-centered view of this. And, um, you know, I mean, if it isn't obvious, I spent a lot of time thinking about this particular issue. So that's what I think. But I would, I would add to that that I expect to be very disappointed. Very disappointed in the quality of the argument, the quality of the questions asked by the court, and what I suspect is going to be a lack of leadership from the court in defining what are the issues that really matter here. The court can say realization is required, so we're going to overrule the Ninth Circuit but leave open what realization means in certain contexts, right? So this is what I expect. Yeah, I I, I would have to second the, the fact that I think it's going to be basically poor quality, um, the, the discussion that's going to happen on Tuesday, unfortunately. Are, are you looking forward to uh, good quality, Karen? Or I mean... Look, this Not is the many of these people. This stuff is so complicated. I mean, I feel sorry for the clerks and the judges to have to deal with this, honestly. I mean, this is so complicated with all they've got going on. I mean, could anybody, you know, learn and understand this well enough in a short period of time? I don't think so. Yes, it's complicated at a certain level it is, but I think if you take a step back from it, some of the issues aren't that complicated, like the retroactivity. It's not that complicated. Um, the discrimination yeah. is not that complicated. You can make it complicated, but it's really not. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that the, why do you think is, you know, just one final question here. Why do you think the 
the the tax academic community is so hostile to the Moors. Aren't they hostile to anybody who doesn't want to pay a tax? Well, that may be, you know, they never so, said yeah. they didn't like, and the more retroactive it is, the better, right? Right. But no, I think it's it's a bit of the chicken little sky is falling kind of reaction to it. Yeah. So if you take realization out, now let's go through, you know, you take, you, you if you require realization to tax, then let's see the worst possible impact that might have on current uh, provisions of the U.S. tax code. Whereas the Supreme Court could easily, you know, narrow the decision so that it applies only to the particular to the the facts in the in the um, repatriation tax. Yeah, I think they can do that, and I think that's exactly what they should do. Uh, frankly, um, I, I I would be very surprised. In fact, there's no chance. There's no chance that uh, you know you're going to get some you know really sweeping decision that you know not only is realization required, but it has to be actually you know receipt of something you know in current time. You're never going to get something like that. Not even I would agree with that. Uh, I mean, I'd like it, but I wouldn't agree with it as a as a principal decision. But this, you know, the retroactivity of this, um, I think, gives uh, gives them an escape hatch where they can say realization is definitely required. That can mean different things in different contexts. But in this particular case, the retroactivity of this is so offensive that we're going to strike it down and leave the rest of this to another day. Or we're going to strike it down for individuals that weren't part of the grand bargain. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, from your lips to God's ears, John. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Th thank you very much, uh, John and Karen. I think this will wrap this up and we'll see what happens on Tuesday. All right. Thanks, Laura. Thanks.